everybody tonight. We're going to be jumping in chapter 19. I know your sheets say 18, but we're going to be jumping in on chapter 19 on God's law. And so we have turned a corner. The first, uh, the first six chapters of the confession are concerning the doctrine of God's word and the doctrine of God. Beginning in chapter 7, going all the way through chapter 18 is concerning uh, the covenant, its mediator, and all of the blessings and benefits that come from his work. And so, as we mentioned this last week, close to more than 60% of the confession is really concerned with helping us better understand the blessings and the benefits of the gospel as we receive them in Christ. And so some people perhaps say, hey, you know, listen, this is a really big confession. I don't know that we need a confession this big. Any confession that's willing to devote the majority of its time to helping us look at the gospel from lots of different angles as we might the various facets of a diamond, and I would say that's a confession worth its weight in gold. And that's exactly what the Second London Confession does. Well, now, beginning of verse 19, or chapter 19, we're going we're gonna to turn a corner into the back half of the confession specifically concerning Christian liberty. Uh, we're going to look at Christian liberty, liberty of conscience. We're going to be looking at uh, of, of religious worship uh, and a variety of other things. And all of it is set up by this chapter on the doctrine of God's law. I've been pastoring for, you know, I've been doing a ministry for 20 years now, and I've been pastoring this church for 10 and uh, I can say without a doubt, without hesitation, that the majority of the conflict that I've had to navigate or mediate or confusion in our own church has been related to law gospel issues. And what I mean by that is what exactly is it that we are obligated to obey and what are the things that we're not obligated to obey? Because the Bible has all kinds of commands. The Old Covenant has more than 600 of them. Are we commanded to obey all of them? What about stoning adulteresses and, and things like that? What about women on their menstrual cycles? Are we really supposed to obey those things? Well, how do we know what we're to obey and what we're not supposed to obey? And as you can imagine, Christians of various ilks have agreed and disagreed on a whole host of issues uh, really related to how much continuity there is between the Old and the New Testament and how much discontinuity there is between the Old and the New Testament. All of it ultimately relates to the doctrine of God's law. So many conflicts in the church ultimately emerge from members binding one another to things that the Bible never binds them to, holding one another accountable to things that God himself at the end of the age won't hold us accountable to. And that could, be, that could be laws that have since been abrogated in the Bible, or it could be just our own laws that we add to the Bible. That's legalism. But on the opposite extreme, we also find that in many churches, it's not merely that, that we so often bind one another and hold one another accountable to laws that we're not ultimately bound to, but it may be that we're, we don't hold one another accountable to laws that we are bound to. And so on the one hand, we have legalism as one extreme. On the other hand, we might have an antinomianism against the law on the opposite extreme. Both ditches on both sides encourage ultimately disobedience. And then in light of all of this is how in the world can we begin to relate the law to the gospel and the gospel to the law? What's the relationship between the two? I can remember early on in my ministry... Uh, I would be preaching, for instance, through the book of James, you know, one of those epistles with all the commands that are really uncomfortable, kind of get into your junk a little bit. And you hit one of those, and I would run to the gospel as fast as I can, almost apologizing for the imperatives of Scripture. And I can look back now and say that a lot of that was, one, I was fearful of being accused of being a legalist, of giving demands without rooting us in the grace of Christ. Uh, but secondly, I didn't really have a very strong understanding of how the law and the gospel related to one another. How does the gospel strengthen our obligation to the commands that God gives us in his word? And then even in addition to that, how does those commands help us to live lives of, of joy, perhaps blessing, not only to ourselves, but to our fellow neighbors? We aim to, to glorify God. All of that is related to the doctrine of God's law. And that's what we're going to be looking at in chapter 19. The law of God. We're turning the corner now. 
And really, between these seven paragraphs in this turning point, pivotal chapter, we're going to see two main sections. The first five paragraphs are going to be concerned with God's law and salvation history. How do we understand God's law at various stages from creation all the way to the new covenant? In what ways does it change? In what ways does it remain the same? That's the first five paragraphs. Then the last two paragraphs, paragraphs six and seven, are going to be concerned with, well then, regarding the laws that are still binding on us, how does God's law then relate to the Christian? How does God's law relate to one who's under the new covenant? And we're going to see, first of all, in paragraph 6, the relationship between the law and the Christian. And then appropriately, the entire chapter is going to close down in the last paragraph with the relationship between the law and the gospel. All of it, I think, is going to show us uh, not only, well, let me just say, put it this way. What this chapter is going to do is going to root us in chapters that have gone before. It's going to root us in the chapter 7 on the covenant because it's fundamentally rooted in a covenant theology, in a biblical covenant theology. But secondly, it's rooted in our doctrine of Christ. And so when we consider, for instance, his act of obedience, that obedience which is imputed to us when we come by God's grace to believe in him, well, then what law is he obeying? And what righteousness is being imputed to us? If we don't have a good understanding of the law, then we're not going to have a good understanding of Christ's active obedience. In fact, if we deny the law, if we would make ourselves, for instance, antinomian against the law, then we have no category for Christ's active obedience. We might have a category for the forgiveness of sins, but not for the active imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness to us, as if we have always obeyed. And so the doctrine of God's law is especially important with regards to Christ's active obedience. What I want to do is I'm going to spend our time this evening, I just want to walk through in kind of summary form the first seven, uh, first seven paragraphs. And then we'll conclude and we'll open up our time a little bit later for some questions. There's all kinds of practical questions that naturally come from this. And depending on the background that you come from, whether you grew up in a church that was maybe more dispensationalist, if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. Or maybe you grew up in a church that was Presbyterian, you're going to find that there's all different kinds of views on how it is that we relate to the law. Not only that, but there are ongoing uh, conversations today. How does the law relate to our obligation of the civil realm? Does the law obligate us as Christians or churches as a whole to the transformation of society through the restoration of Christ's kingdom through civil governments? So when Jesus in Matthew 28 delivers the Great Commission, and he says, Go therefore into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is he saying that... It's men and women from all nations that will be baptized, or is it entire nations? And will they be brought into obedience under God's law? These are relevant conversations today. And so some of you perhaps have heard names like theonomy, reconstructionism, Christian nationalism. At the end of the day, all of these discussions are rooted, are founded in what we understand to be true about God's law. So law gospel issues have to do with our own personal piety and practice. Law gospel issues have to do with our own understanding of the mission of the church as it relates to the world and to the civil, civil government. This is an eminently important topic for our church. So without any further ado, I want to go ahead and just dive on in. Chapter 19, beginning in paragraph 1. And I'm going to be reading from the modern English version, the one that has been modernized by Stan Reeves. I won't be re reading the old 17th century version. Here's what we have. God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By these, God obligated him and all of his descendants to personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience. God promised life if Adam fulfilled it and threatened death if he broke it. And he gave Adam the power and ability to keep it. 
Here we see in the first paragraph God's law before the fall. And it's going to make a really important distinction. The important distinction that it's going to make, if you're following along on your sheet, is the distinction then between the natural law, or the moral law, and positive law. Now, when we're talking about natural law, that is the law that God, it says that God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written on his heart, it's referring to the natural law, or the moral law. It's internal. And this is what it means. The moral law refers to the immutable, that is unchangeable, universal moral law written by God on the hearts of every image bearer since creation. Ecclesiastes 7.29, man was created upright. Romans 2.14-15, that the Gentiles, those who don't even have the law, do what the law demands even though they don't have it. How is that possible? Well, Paul says it's because it's been written on their hearts. And so it is with all men everywhere. That God's moral law of what it is that he uh, commands of us has been written on our hearts. And so to be made in God's image is to be made at the most fundamental level a moral creature. Because God's law has been written on our hearts. Well, that moral law runs alongside what we might also call positive laws. Now, we don't mean positive laws as if positive versus negative, what we mean by positive laws are certain commands that are uh, generally indifferent things that have been posited in the context of a covenant for a specific period, place, and people. So think about it this way. You may eat of this tree and that tree and the other tree, all the trees, but you can't eat of that tree. Well, in and of itself, eating from a tree is not inherently moral. It only becomes moral when God, the covenant maker, posits it in the context of a covenant and attaches to it certain promises and certain threats. If you eat of it, you're going to die. If you don't eat of it, then you're going to live. Not only that, I'm going to confirm you in my rest forever, in my eternal rest you represent all of my people. So you need to obey both the natural law written on your hearts, the positive law given. Think about circumcision given to Abraham, Genesis 17, or baptism in the Lord's Supper given in the New Testament. None of these by themselves, the cutting off of a foreskin or being dunked in water, are moral. I mean, I guess unless you hold them under for too long, that would be moral. But baptism in and of itself, the Lord's Supper in and of itself are not inherently moral. Eating bread, drinking wine in and of itself is not necessarily immoral or moral. They're indifferent matters, but they become moral matters. They become matters of obedience and disobedience when God, the covenant maker, posits them in the context of a covenant. Therefore, they're positive laws. This is going to be really, really important. Because to make a distinction between moral laws are those laws that are binding on all people everywhere for all time and all places, those who've been made in the image of God. Positive laws are those laws that change across covenants. Moral laws are immutable because they're rooted in the very nature of God. God is holy, just, and good, and His law is holy, just, and good. Therefore, His law, His moral law, can no more change than God can change. And yet those positive laws will change as He changes the terms of covenants from one covenant to another, whether it's the covenant of works in the garden, whether it's the old covenant given to Israel on Sinai, or whether it's the new covenant ratified by Christ in his own shed blood. That those positive laws will change. They're not immutable, but they're mutable. And so this distinction is going to be really important. It was established earlier in the confession, and it's being reinforced here in chapter 19. Well, I want you to notice also in the first paragraph that there's a number of important points that are being made. This natural law that is made, that is written on man's hearts, the positive law that is given to Adam, that Adam is obligated to it. Not only that, all of his descendants are obligated to perpetual, total, exact obedience. So we see two things implied in that sentence. We see on the one hand, Adam's headship. He's the federal head of all of humanity. That as Adam goes, so goes the rest of his kingdom. That when Adam jumps off sides, he's not the only one that gets penalized five yards. The whole team gets penalized. He represents all of us. That through one man, death and sin spread to all men. Romans 5. 
But not only that, even if the positive law, the covenant of works being abrogated, in other words, you and I don't have to obey the law to eat or not eat from a certain tree, the moral law written on the heart is still binding on us in such a way that we still have to obey it. And we'll get to what that moral law is in just a moment. So in Adam and all those made in God's image, it has a binding obligation. It also has, prior to the fall, stated conditions that if Adam obeys, then he gets life. If he disobeys, then he gets death. And here's the deal at the end of the paragraph. He is able to do it. Sin has not yet come into the world. Adam is in a state of innocence. That's what we looked at in chapter 9. And so he is free to obey or disobey. Is sin a possibility? Yeah, you bet it is. But so is righteousness. And of course, we know Adam disobeyed and sin and death spread to all men everywhere. And so that first paragraph shows us God's law and its twofold substance, the natural law and the positive law, shows us its binding obligation on all men everywhere, demanding personal, total, exact, and perpetual, that is permanent obedience. Its stated conditions, no less than life or death are at stake. And prior to the fall, its able subjects. Adam had the ability to obey if he would. But when we get to second paragraph, what we see is God's law after the fall. What happens to God's law after the fall? Follow along with me, paragraph two. The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and it was written in two tables. The first four commandments contain our duty to God, and the other six are duty to humanity. There's two things that I want you to consider in this paragraph. The first is continuation. That the law that is written on Adam's heart is the same law that will be written on all men's hearts for all time. We just saw that in Romans 2, 14 to 15. It's worth putting your eyes on it. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Here, Paul is comparing those who have not been given the law at Sinai with those who do have the law, Jews versus Gentiles. Because remember, his argument at the beginning of Romans is this, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then the Gentile, which is really just to say the gospel is the power of salvation for the whole world, for all nations. Well, what is it if... If Gentiles, non-Jews, don't have the law, what is it that ultimately condemns or accuses them? What proves their guilt? Verse 14, when Gentiles who do not have the law, here's a key word, by nature, naturally, by virtue of being made in God's image, do what the law requires, well, then they are a law to themselves. Their consciences become a law even though they do not have the law. They weren't there at Sinai. They didn't receive the law as one generation after another, and the Jewish nation did. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. How will God judge all men if only Israel received the law at Sinai. Answer, all men have God's moral law written on their hearts because they are made in his image. And to be made in his image is to be an inherently moral being, just as God is holy. And so our consciences accuse us or our consciences excuse us. And so we see continuation. Paul is affirming that continuation. He's saying the law has continued all the way to my day, and so it will be until God judges that law written on men's hearts. But I want you to notice a second thing in that second paragraph. Not only continuation, I want you to notice revelation. That that which was inward and hidden, written on men's hearts, was ultimately written on stone, publicly visible in the Decalogue. In other words, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law written on every man's heart from creation. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought the Ten Commandments were given to Israel. 
That's true, they were. They were delivered to Israel in Exodus 20. In Exodus 20 and following, God ratifies his covenant with Israel and the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Ten Words become that orienting, governing reality from which all the other laws stem. So how are we to think about it? Is it only for Israel? Now that we're under the New Covenant, are the Ten Commandments binding on us anymore? Well, here's the question that we need to ask. If it can be established that each of the Ten Commandments were not only present in, their po in, in positive aspects, that is in their obedience, but also in negative aspects, that is they're condemned, each of those Ten Commandments either commended or condemned prior to the giving of law in Exodus 20, then we can establish that the moral law written on all men's hearts prior to the giving of the law on Sinai is in fact the law that was given at Sinai. Do you follow? I made a really big chart for you in your handout. Notice the first commandment, no false gods. What we see immediately in Genesis 3, 5, that the man and the woman attempted to become like God. We remember also that Egypt was judged by God because they violated essentially the first three commandments. They worshipped false gods, they made idols, and they took the Lord's name in vain, cursing him. Not only that, the second commandment commands that there should be no false worship. Don't make idols. But do you remember? Jacob had to tell all of his household to put away their foreign gods. They were guilty of it, such that they had to put it away if they were going to enjoy God's blessing in the land. Third commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain. We see it most notably positively in the way the patriarchs obeyed by rightly calling on the name of the Lord over and over and over again. Fourth commandment, in keeping the Sabbath day holy, we see in the Genesis account that God rested on the seventh day. In Exodus 5, Moses told Pharaoh to let Israel go into the wilderness to worship, and then Pharaoh responds by saying, you lazy Israelites, you just want to go out there to rest. So Moses shows up, gives a command, let us go celebrate the feasts. And, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let you rest. And the word that he uses for rest is the exact same word that is used in the fourth commandment. So whatever it is that Moses was commanding, Moses and Aaron were commanding a Pharaoh there in Exodus 5, Pharaoh understood it as a command to let us go and rest as an act of worship to God. We see it also in, in Exodus 19 or Exodus 16. Before ever arriving at Sinai, God expected Israel to gather manna, do it twice on the sixth day, but then rest on the seventh day. But the Sabbath hadn't been given yet. Not as a covenant signed to Israel. That doesn't happen until Exodus 20 and later. And so there seems to be an assumption that there is a, a Sabbath recognition that we can say is rooted all the way back in the creation order. The fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Well, we see Ham shamed his father Noah, that he was cursed, or rather his son Canaan was, and all of his, all of his descendants. The sixth commandment commands that we shouldn't murder. But Cain was cursed for murdering Abel. The Noahic covenant established retributive justice. An eye for an eye. If, if man sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, if you murder, that's bad. You're going to get killed for it. Sixth commandment. Simeon and Levi, remember, made themselves assassins when their, when their uh, sister was violated. And... Jacob said, that is to my shame. You have shamed us. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We notice that positively in Genesis 2.24. Marriage is a one flesh union. When a man and a woman become one flesh, that is not to be shared. Sexual, uh, that sexual relationship is not to be enjoyed outside of that one flesh union. Jesus later on affirms that in Matthew 19 and elsewhere. We see Sodom and, and Shechem are going to be judged for sexual immorality. But why are they going to be judged? Why would God judge for sexual immorality? Romans 2, it's because the law of God has been written on their hearts. They knew and acted in disobedience. Their consciences smote them, and so did God. Eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Jacob defrauded Laban. Laban defrauded Jacob. Rachel steals from Laban. Genesis 30 and 31, if you want to see a dysfunctional family, then just pay attention to Jacob and Laban and Rachel. Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Cain lied about Abel's whereabouts to God. 
Abraham deceived Pharaoh about Sarah. And then eight chapters later in Genesis 20, he did the exact same thing in front of Abimelech. Sold his wife out of fear for his own life. No, she's just my sister, he said. Finally, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Abimelech coveted Abraham's wife and was threatened with death and cursed with barrenness. We could come up with many more examples, but I think this is sufficient to show that prior to the giving of the law, the 10 commandments at Sinai in Exodus 20, all of these laws were either commended or condemned prior to the giving of the, giving of the law to Israel. And if that's the case, then here's the conclusion. The moral law written on man's heart that is both commended and condemned prior to the giving of the law or the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue on Sinai, must then be summarized by the commandments given on Sinai. You follow? If it can be established they pre-existed Sinai, then Sinai is not novel, it's not new to Israel. It is repeated, it is summarized, it is established that which has already been established in God's creative order. And so we have two things in that second paragraph, God's law after the fall, we see continuation, and we see revelation, written on man's hearts from beginning and written on stone in the Decalogue. Well, now in paragraphs three and four, we see God's law after Sinai. And we're going to see two things. We're going to see, on the one hand, civil laws, and we're going to see ceremonial laws. Those ceremonial laws are going to be focused on in paragraph 3. The civil laws are going to be focused on in paragraph 4. And then I want you to glance down because paragraph 5 is going to focus and return once again to God's moral law. This is what Reformed theologians through the ages have primarily referred to as the tripartite or the three-part division of the law. Civil, ceremonial, Moral. The moral is binding on all men for all time. We are bound to perpetual, permanent, and exact obedience. That's true prior to Sinai, and it's true after Israel. But God gave positive laws. Remember the distinction? He gave not just moral, but positive laws to Israel. And those positive laws are rooted or founded upon God's immutable moral law, such that they are true for Israel in the context of their covenant. But should the covenant change, then those positive laws given to Israel and their ceremonial worship and their civil life together must also change. Let's see what the confession has to say. First of all, in chapter 3, ceremonial laws, it says this, in addition to this law, usually called the moral law, that which is perpetually binding on all men in all places at all times, summarized in the Ten Commandments, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typological ordinances. Now, you remember when we talk about typology, what are we talking about? We're talking about patterns of people, places, and events that all look forward to a greater fulfillment and escalation into another person, another place, or another event. Types or patterns, shadows and substances. Well, here it says, these ceremonial laws containing several typological ordinances. In some ways, these concerned worship. That is the worship of Israel, their sacrifices and etc. By prefiguring Christ, he was our Passover lamb. He's the one who would be offered as a guilt offering for us. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, would be fulfilled in Christ. But not only prefiguring Christ, prefiguring His graces, the forgiveness of sins, His actions, how He would lay His life down, but His active and, and passive obedience, His sufferings, His benefits, all of it is foreshadowed in these positive laws given to Israel. But then he says, in other ways, they revealed various instructions about moral duties. Since all of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the new order arrives, speaking of the new covenant, they're now abolished and they're taken away by Jesus Christ. As the true Messiah and the only lawgiver, he was empowered by the Father to do this. In other words, Christ, having all authority, can break and make covenants, can change positive laws from one covenant to the other. He's the covenant maker. 
He cannot change moral laws because they're rooted in God's immutable nature. But those positive laws, those indifferent things can be changed from one covenant to the other, and Christ has the authority to do it. Two things I want you to notice in this third paragraph. One is that those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant are first and foremost typical. They, they are a pattern of a greater reality. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. This is really what the whole book of Hebrews is about. The escalation of the Old Covenant to its fulfillment in the New Covenant as ratified by Christ, our great high priest. Hebrews 10 chapter 1, for since the law has but, keyword, a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. They had to be continually offered because they were insufficient. Christ has offered himself once for all. Why? Because he's sufficient. All of those ceremonial aspects were just shadows looking forward to a greater fulfillment in Christ. Colossians 2.17 says the same thing. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's biblical language. Shadow, substance. Type, anti-type, pattern, fulfillment. And that's exactly what it's showing here. Those ceremonial laws that are positive in nature, they're indifferent, are established by God given to Israel so that Israel in mystery and typological form might have a revelation of the gospel of what it is that God is going to do in Christ one day. But because Christ comes, secondly, they're not just typical, they're also temporary. Hebrews 8.13, go back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, key verse here. Right after establishing the fulfillment of the new covenant promise from Jeremiah 33, in Christ, this is what the author says, verse 19, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. It's been abrogated. It's no longer binding. Why? Because when the substance comes, the shadows flee. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We don't need it anymore. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Here it talks about the time of reformation. Deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, all those things that we find under the old covenant. They are imposed until a specific time. What is the time? The time of reformation. That's what the language in the, in the paragraph is saying. All of these ceremonial laws, the confession says, were appointed only until the new order arrived. They are now abolished and taken away by Jesus Christ. The Reformation has come. The new covenant has been established. Those shadows have passed away because the substance is here. Well, in paragraph 4, we see something similar. God has given positive laws, not only in ceremonial terms under the old covenant, but he's also given positive laws in civil terms to Israel, certain ways that Israel was supposed to govern their life together. Look at what the confession says. To Israel, he also gave various judicial or civil laws, which ceased or expired at the same time the nation ended. These laws no longer obligate anyone as part of that institution. Only their general principles of justice, that is their general equity, continue to have moral value. Two important E words emerge from this paragraph. Expiration, equity. All of those civil laws positively given to Israel under the new covenant for the governance of their life together as a nation have passed away from one covenant to the other. They're obsolete now. We're not bound to them, and if we're not bound to them, neither are the nations. But secondly, not only expiration, we also see equity. That undergirding a lot of these civil laws are moral principles rooted in God's moral law. Principles related to justice, retributive justice, whether it is the paying back of debts, whether it is how to handle someone who's, who's murdered someone else, of, of how to be just in the handling of, of certain aspects in marriage and with children and inheritance, etc., etc., etc. That while the positive aspects of 
of the law are unique to Israel, the moral underpinnings are applicable to everybody everywhere. Why? Because that law has been written on our hearts. That natural law is written on our hearts. And so listen, we may all presume to be on the one hand moral relativists, but if you were to walk up to anybody anywhere in the world and punch them square in the nose, they're going to want justice. Why? Because that's unethical. It's immoral. If you walk up and you steal everything out of somebody's bank account, they're going to want it back. Why? Because stealing is bad. Why do we all know this? From one nation to the next, from one community to the next, because it's been written on our hearts. That moral law has been written on all hearts everywhere, and it undergirds that civil law. So while the positive aspects, the stoning of adulteresses, pass away, the moral law, the laws pertaining to sexual immorality specifically, are still binding on all of us today. Does that make sense? Notice what James Renahan says. He says, The judicial laws of the old covenant of Israel no more bind new covenant believers than the civil laws of the United States bind citizens of other countries in their own homeland. In other words, if I'm in the United States, the laws of France don't apply to me. If I'm in France, the laws of the United States don't apply to me if I'm a French citizen. But look at how he concludes. This does not mean that the differing civil laws necessarily point to differing morality. If I'm in the United States and I steal, I'm going to get the sword. If I go to French or I go to France and I steal, then the civil government is right to flex the sword against me, and it will. If I murder in the United States, and I murder in France, or I murder in Germany, or I murder in Brazil, then an eye for an eye. If you shed man's blood, by man's blood shall you be shed, or something like that. Yeah, you got it. By man's blood shall... That was an awkward saying, but you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. But you understand what's going on. Moral law, written on men's hearts, summarized in the Ten Commandments, binding on all men in all places at all times, perpetually, perfectly, and exactly. Positive laws are given to certain people at certain times in the context of certain covenants and change from one covenant to the next. And the positive laws that are both ceremonial and civil in nature are no longer binding on us or on anybody. Full stop. So then how do we consider God's moral law? How do we consider his law across covenants? We see that in paragraph 5. We see, first of all, the character of the moral law. The confession says, The moral law forever requires obedience of everyone, both those who are justified, that is Christians, as well as others. And otherwise, if you're a Christian and you've been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, you don't get an out from obeying God's moral law. Now, we need to understand an important term in Romans 6. What does it mean to be under the law versus under grace? If you were here when we were doing our verse by verse, we talked about this. We're going to get to it in just a minute. He's saying that you are under grace. You're no longer under the law, but you are obligated to obey God's moral law. And, because, and the reason for that is twofold. Number one, as we've already seen, the moral law is permanent. It is the moral, the moral law is forever because it's rooted in God's moral nature. But secondly, it is universal, applicable to all people at all times in all places. That's why in Romans 13 and in James 2, both the apostles quote the Decalogue at length to establish that not only Christians, but all people everywhere are obligated to the moral law summarized in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Well, we think not only about the character of the moral law, so God's law is binding by the virtue of its very character. It's immutable just as God is immutable. But secondly, we notice the basis for the moral law. It says in the, in, the, in the confession, this obligation arises not only because of its content, but also because of the authority of God, the creator who gave it. And otherwise, we, in other words, we are obligated to obey the moral law because its content is moral. It is fundamentally moral, and we have been made in the image of God, and so we are moral creatures. And insofar as God's very nature defines what morality is, and His moral law is the definition of morality, 
then the content of his moral law forms the basis of our obligation. But not only that, not only its content, but also its author, because of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. If God has commanded us, then as his creatures, we are obligated to obey. We're obligated to obey. Finally, in paragraph 5, we see the gospel and the moral law. How do they relate? It says that Christ in any way does not dissolve this obligation in the gospel. Instead, he greatly strengthens it. This harmony between the law and the gospel is both negatively and positively stated. On the one hand, it doesn't dissolve our obligation to the moral laws summarized in the Ten Commandments. Positively stated, it strengthens our obligation to it. It strengthens us in such a way that we are able to say with David, a regenerate David, one who has been born again by the grace of God, believing in the gospel is revealed in a mystery. That David who wrote so many of our psalms were able to say with him, I delight in the law. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Right? Anybody seen Elf? Anyways. Well, listen, outside of the gospel, I don't love God's law. Why? Because it condemns me and accuses me. But in the gospel, because I'm justified in Christ, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, then what Christ has done is fundamentally changed my relationship to the law. He's not dissolved my obligation to it. He's changed my relationship to it. Now what's, what was once a terror to me is my deepest delight because it's the means whereby in the power of the Holy Spirit I commune with God, love Him, and love my neighbor just as He's designed me to do. That's the first main section of chapter 19. It's a big one. God's law through salvation history beginning in creation prior to Sinai, after Sinai, and into the new covenant concerning the gospel. But now in the last two paragraphs, we're going to consider God's law and the Christian. Read along with me, paragraph 6. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works. We'll talk about that in a minute. To be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and of their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of His obedience. This law is also useful to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. The punishment threatened in the law shows them what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings that they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. First of all, notice that between the law and the Christian, we do, not, we do not relate to the law anymore as a covenant of works. This is what I just said. That what the gospel does, it doesn't dissolve our obligation to God's moral law. What it does is it changes at the most fundamental level our relationship to it. Such that now we don't relate to the law as a means whereby we might justify ourselves on the basis of our lawful obedience. No, we would be condemned if that were the case. If we disobey one law, we violate all of it, Paul says. No, we don't relate to the law anymore as a kind of covenant of works, presuming to justify ourselves by our obedience. We look to the righteousness of Christ alone. That's what we saw in, in, in chapter 8. That Christ's act of obedience under the law, His perfect obedience, obeying His Father and His will, everything revealed in the moral law, and everything given as a true Jew positively to Israel, Jesus obeyed it all perfectly, perpetually, exactly. Such that now all who are brought to repent and believe in Christ have that righteousness imputed to them. That it's not merely that we are forgiven, justified, never sinned. 
That when we are justified, it is when God looks at us robed in the righteousness of Christ, and it is if we have always obeyed perfectly, perpetually, and exactly because Christ obeyed for us. That changes our relationship to the law. We don't relate to the law anymore as a basis for justification. We relate to it now to know and enjoy God, to obey Him and love Him, and to love our neighbor. Well, we notice in this paragraph that the law is also a rule of life. This is what many in the Reformed tradition would call the third use of the law. And notice what it does. It does a number of things. It directs us, first of all. It gives us direction. It shows us how to live. Secondly, it exposes us. This is certainly true when we first became Christians, that we were exposed by God's law. We found out that we were sinners. The law pointed us to Christ. We trusted in Him, and we were saved by His grace through faith alone. But even as a Christian, it continues to expose us and shows us that on this side of the resurrection, there is still yet indwelling sin in us. We continue to do what we don't want to do, Romans 7. And it says, as we examine ourselves in light of the law, we come to further conviction, humiliation, and hatred of sin. It is a good thing for us to see sin for what it is and all of its deceptive and destructive power that we might turn from it. Not only does it expose us, it also restrains us. That it acts as a restraint. All of us have indwelling sin. There are remaining corruptions in us between now and when Christ returns. But the law helps to restrain those by helping to see sin clearly. By showing us what's forbidden. We don't have to guess. God's already told us. That all of the threatenings of the law show us what our sins deserve. But notice this, even though we're freed from the curse and the undiminished severity of it. In other words, it shows us how awful the consequences of sin are, even while reminding us in Christ that those consequences aren't ours. When it says it's undiminished, it's not saying that it's undiminished for us. It's saying that the full weight of the retributive justice of God and His wrath against sinners will not be in any way because of Christ coming throttled back at the end of the age. And when we look at the law and we see what sin deserves, we take it seriously and we run from it and we put it to death in our lives because it leads to death. Finally, it promises us that the law is in a sense, a quid pro quo, and we don't relate to the law for eternal life, and yet God in His moral law has woven into His creation ways in which we obey, we enjoy blessing in this life, blessed relationships. When we work hard is under the Lord, and so we will reap. And so God's law is woven into the very fabric of creation, into our very hearts, such that in the revelation of His law, we see in its conditions the blessings that we enjoy through obedience, most notably the knowledge and the enjoyment of God Himself in Christ. So it directs us, exposes us, restrains us, and it promises us things. Finally, this is important, at the very end of paragraph 6, notice the qualification that's made. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. Go to Romans chapter 6. That's where the language is coming from. Romans chapter 6. We begin in verse 12. Do not let, therefore, sin reign in your mortal body. It has no dominion over you because you've died with Christ, been buried with Him, and raised with Him to new life. Christ destroyed the dominion of sin and death. You're in Christ, and so sin and death have no dominion over you. Therefore, you don't have to, in verse 12, obey its passions. Verse 13. Do not present your members as sins to... As, uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You have new life, a new constitution, new desires, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. It doesn't control you. When it says jump, you don't have to say how high. When it says to do something, you don't say, yes, master. 
It has no dominion over you because you're not under law but under grace. Well, what does that mean then when it says you're not under law? I think the confession is right in, in saying this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that what Christ has done is dissolve our obligation to God's moral law. To say that we're no longer under law is to say that we no longer relate to the law. We're no longer under the law as a kind of covenant of works, presuming to justify ourselves by it. A slave to sin. We are under grace, justified in Christ by faith. That's what he established in the earlier chapters. So yeah, we are to obey God's moral law. The gospel and the power of the Spirit strengthens us to do that, and we do so joyfully. We are not under law, not meaning that we're not obligated to obey God's moral law, but we're not under law because we no longer have to relate to it as a means to justify ourselves. And praise God for that. That's really good news. And so the, the principle at the very end of paragraph 6 is this, that committing yourself to lawful obedience, to obeying God's moral law, is not legalism. There are all kinds of churches that get way too concerned with heresy hunting anybody that's concerned with obeying Christ. Well, don't come in here with that obedience stuff. That's legalism. Well, if everything is true that the confession is summarized up to this point, then it cannot be legalism. It is God's very best for us. And rooted in the grace of Christ, strengthened by His Spirit, we no longer relate to it as a means to justify ourselves, but as a means to know God, enjoy Him, to love Him, and to serve our neighbor. That is not legalism. That is freedom. Finally, paragraph 7. The law and the gospel. These uses of the law are not contrary to the grace of the gospel, but are in sweet harmony with it. For the Spirit of Christ subdues and enables the human will to do freely and cheerfully what the will of God is revealed in the law requires. Number one, the gospel does not disagree with the law. The gospel agrees with it. It is complicit with the law. They are best friends like peanut butter and jelly. They go together. The law shows us our needs for, need for Christ and leads us to Him. Having now being in Christ by faith, we turn to the law and delight in it as David delighted in it because we're strengthened by the Spirit. No longer relating to it as a means of justifying, but as a means of, of knowing and enjoying and glorifying and loving God and loving our neighbor. So that's the harmony of the law and the gospel. So many errors in the church flow out of not getting the law and the gospel right, of not understanding the difference between positive and moral laws, of not understanding what distinguishes what we are obligated to and what we're not obligated to. So much confusion in the church stems from a confusion about how we relate to God's law. The confession points us straight.